Thanks, Amy. Like she said, I'm, I'm the new guy. I'm Matt Sutton, new associate pastor. And I just want to say, you know, as we get, get going here, uh, thanks so much. The last few weeks with, with me and my wife, Anna, and our two little girls, you guys have just been really nice to us and welcoming and warm and welcoming us into this family. So, so thanks so much for that. I'm really bad with names. So if I ask you for your name, and like some Sundays we're wearing masks and some not, so if I ask you for your name again, just forgive me, chalk it up to my low mental capacity, and we'll just, we'll just be friends, okay? Is that fair? Um, thank you. So hey, we're going to be in John chapter 5 today. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, or you can scroll there on your phone or, or device or whatever. We're going to be in John chapter 5, continuing through um, our uh, series on questions. You know, as Fred's been saying, over the... Uh, the course of Jesus' life and the four Gospels that we have, collectively about 400 questions that Jesus asked. And so this is week four of that. We're going to be in the first few verses of John chapter five. But before we jump into the sermon, I just want to uh, say, you know, part of my job here as the associate pastor um, is, is helping out with the worship and the production. And so if you are, have been, you know, waiting for your opportunity to get involved and serve and just do something to help out at church... Man, you don't have to sing or play a guitar or piano or, or anything on stage to help out. I mean, like these slides, you know, they don't run themselves. The sound doesn't run itself. The video stuff that we do for online, we got volunteers each week doing that. And so if you've been sitting around uh, waiting like, man, I really want to get involved, but I just don't know what my spiritual gifts are. Man, let me free you up. You don't need a spiritual gift to run ProPresenter and get the slides up. It's a great way to do it. And if, if, you know, if you want to serve, if you want to jump in, or you're like, hey, I can play an instrument, but I can't sing, that's okay. We, we would love to have a little bit more up here on stage going to band and stuff. So if you're interested in serving in any capacity with worship, with production, with making the Sunday morning service happen, uh, you can email me, matt at fellowshipashville.com. Uh, or you can just come up after the service and talk to me face-to-face. I'd love to, love to get you plugged in somehow. And if you're like, hey, the only instrument I play is the triangle, man, praise God. We'd love to get you. Come on. You know, uh, we'd love to figure that out with you. So, uh, so John chapter 5 today, um, as Fred mentioned, as we're thinking through the questions, I love the way that Fred has kind of framed the questions for us. Uh, how do the questions of Jesus show us who Jesus is and help us grow in trust and faith in him. And this question, the last few weeks, as I've been you know, studying and thinking through it and preparing for today, it really has challenged me in a lot of ways because as is typical with Jesus, uh, there is normally a straightforward connection, but then there are always these deeper implications that come with it. And so as, as we look through it today, uh, I, I was kind of thinking as I was going through this story about two types of people in the world. All right, And my wife and I love to debate this. All right, there are optimists and there are pessimists. And you know someone's a pessimist if they call themselves a realist. Okay, so how many, let's just ask this, how many realists are in the, are in the crowd today? Okay, yep. Okay, how many optimists are glad to be here today? Because it's a great day. You never, yeah, come on. I'm the optimist in, in, uh, in, in, in my marriage. Uh, it seems like it's funny. We, we typically seem to marry the other or like friendships, close friendships. And, and, you know, even like it seems like even like in the business world, like business partners seem to be kind of, you know, that way. But listen, you're either an optimist or a pessimist, okay? Because no, no, no one knows the outcome. 
right? So, so you're kind of making a conscious decision on if it's going to be good or if it's going to be bad because we don't, we don't really know. We don't really know. And it's like kind of funny to think about that. And I'm sorry, I probably sparked a lot of like frustrating conversations uh, going out. But, but for me, like the glass isn't half full. There's not even a glass. It's just like an ocean, right? Or like a waterfall. Like we don't even need to worry about the glass containing all the goodness that can come. And my wife's like, hey, let's not get a glass because it might break and we'll cut our finger. You know? So, so we're just two very different, very different people, opposite ends of the spectrum, and I wanted to bring that up because um, it was interesting. This week I was reading an article, and, and I know this sounds super lame, but it wasn't like for fun. It was just for preparation for the sermon. I was reading, reading an article in Psychology Today. And, and earlier this year, uh, coming, you know, as, as we've been going through a year of, of COVID and, and just heart, like Amy was saying, like, man, it's just been chaos and it seems so strange and odd. And what do we do with these things? Um, a, a, a psychologist, Dr. Courtney Beard uh, wrote an article on hopelessness, on, on, on hopelessness. And we've all felt it at some point. And she had some, some interesting things to say because she said hopeless, hopelessness or, or what you could call maybe chronic pessimism uh, as a joke, um, it comes through eventually what happens is uh, people learn what, what she called interpretive bias which basically means when we don't know the outcome of a situation, we interpret the way it's going to end based on the way that we think it's going to end. Does that make sense? So when you think about a pessimist or an optimist, I'm an optimist because I'm, I'm making a conscious, whether it feels conscious or not, I'm making a conscious decision of when I don't know the outcome to say, I think it's just going to be fine. I think, we're, I think it's going to be great. Whereas someone else might say, no, no, I, I think that it's not going to end well, and I'm making a conscious because I'm thinking through all the implications, I'm thinking through what could go wrong, how do I protect myself from what's going wrong, all those things. So we, have an, we are interpreting the circumstance or the situation. We don't know the outcome, but we have a bias that we kind of lean to one way or the other. And it's a really interesting article. Dr. Beard goes on to say that there are things, mechanisms, when you understand the way we think and process, that we can actually change some of those things and help ourselves have a more realistic view of what can happen, but we don't know that outcome. But here's what she says. She says that hopelessness, it is connected to interpretive bias, and here's how she defines it. She defines hopelessness as a feeling that we think is now reality as though everything is going wrong and there's nothing we can do about it. And so maybe that resonates and hits a little close to home today in some circumstance, in some life event where you find yourself today feeling hopeless. Because what once was unknown has now become the way you think it is going to happen no matter what. And when we find the question we're going to look at today in, in this story in John and the man who Jesus asks the question to is almost the definition, the picture of hopelessness. Uh, so let, let me read the first few verses of John chapter 5 and then we'll jump into the sermon. John chapter 5, after this there was a feast of the Jews. So Jesus had just, he was traveling to Galilee, he had just healed a an official's son, a high-ranking guy in society and, and business and the military, we're not really sure, an official, uh, someone who's just held in high esteem, Jesus heals his son. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews. 
And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, and it has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. In verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So we had just gotten Jesus opening up his public ministry. Uh, we know kind of the story of, of, um, of John and how he gets here, but let me just kind of set up briefly the book. Chapter 1, you get an introduction to Jesus, and you meet John the Baptist. Uh, chapter 2, um, you get uh, John, uh, Jesus at the, the wedding of Cana, where he turns the water into wine, and then he kind of begins going around teaching uh, chapter 3 is the, kind of the famous story. Uh, we know at least one verse in that story in John chapter 3 uh, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's really changing. Nicodemus was a, was a teacher of the law of Israel so he knew, it, he knew the scriptures really well and Jesus was just bringing him some really like category shattering teachings and concepts and ideas and truths about who he is and what he had come to do. Verse four, or chapter four, uh, you get the story of Jesus going and talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And then at the end, like I said, he, he heals an official son. And the reason I set all that up is, is to get us thinking through, uh, you know, Fred each week has kind of told us how the different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, kind of are trying to convince you of a different, different aspect of Jesus, right? So let's see if any pop quiz, anybody remember Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is what? Anybody remember? King. Great job. All right. Uh, Mark is, he's trying to convince us Jesus is servant. Right. Good job, Brian. Uh, Luke, he's trying to convince us that Jesus is, everybody's looking through the notes. I love it. All, the, all our type A people are like going back through their notes real quick. That Jesus is human. And then John is trying to convince the readers, his readers, that Jesus is God. Okay, so, so what we get in John, the way that he sets it up and structures it is really important. So I think this story lands in kind of an important context, and we'll talk about that a little more. But looking at these verses, um, just, I just kind of walk through and kind of get us to verses 4 and five, uh, or 5 and 6, and then we're going we're gonna to look at the last few verses of the story and hone in there. Um, in, in verse 1, G, John has kind of set up the first few chapters and he is comparing Jesus to be stronger and better than kind of purification rites and rituals of the Jews, right? So, so anybody remember the water that he turned into wine? The water was there for purification purposes, it says. And then when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says that you got to be born again, which is the idea of like you got to be recreated to something totally different, which to us, we don't carry that mindset of like recreation, but for, for someone who knew the Old Testament well, that would have been right on par because in a lot of ways, the Old Testament is trying to convince us that God will bring us back to the garden, okay? And he's gonna recreate the world. Uh, that's why a lot of times the end of the Isaiah and Ezekiel's the big prophets kind of freak us out a little bit because we don't know what to do with that. But then um, in chapter five, John begins laying out these, these kind of trials of Jesus, 
Like every time, like so it says there's a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you've read through the Gospels enough, you know that whenever Jesus goes to Jerusalem, like things are about to get a little weird. Like there's typically like some, there's a little bit of butting heads. There's like people trying to arrest Jesus and kill him and stone him. And then he just like disappears. And, and so th- like things are, get a little bit heated whenever Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And we know how it ultimately ends with him going to Jerusalem, right? Is that he's welcomed in as the king and then he's killed. But here you have a feast of the Jews and John is setting up for the next five chapters where he's comparing Jesus, he's kind of talked about how he's better than all the purification rituals, and now he's talking about how Jesus is actually better in the ultimate fulfillment of all of the priests, I mean the feasts of Israel. So, so he goes up, he's at a feast, he's there in Jerusalem, and then verses two and three, I just want us to, to take a second, because it's easy to read through these things, and, and we think about like the story just as a story. But let, let's just set the scene a little bit, okay? So the sheep gate, in the pools that are there, all right, they still exist in Jerusalem. There is a church called St. Anne's Church, and near there, there's these two pools, all right? So when it, when it says a pool, uh, it's, it, there's two, and they're kind of trapezoid-shaped, and they're, they have these beautiful, big stone, you know, um, columned uh, porches, basically, all right? So people could sit in the shade and stuff, and there is a multitude of invalids, Okay, so let's just, let's just kind of set the scene, like if you need to close your eyes, if you're visual, whatever. But let's just, let's just imagine, um, has anybody ever like been to a really crowded public pool before? There's just everybody laying around and like, like it's a little awkward, but you're like, I mean, we're all like in the same boat here. Okay, so just kind of picture in your mind just a packed, it says a multitude of invalids. Okay, but the difference is that these people, uh, the people that were there, the people that were surrounding pools, um, it says that they were blind, lame, and paralyzed. This man, we read uh, in verse 7, didn't have anyone there to help him. All right, so these are people who uh, most of the time paralyzed, you know, had no control of their bodies from the waist down. They had no one to help them clean. Uh, They had no one to help them get in the water to wash off. Um, It's hot. It's in Jerusalem. We're talking desert, we're talking hot sun. And, and just imagine as, as people are walking by the sounds you would hear, people asking for money, people arguing over getting into the pool. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that in just a second, why. And, and I mean, there, there's, there's this constant friction because also, if you keep reading in the story, it's the Sabbath and there were people who were considered like very religious and clean on the Sabbath day that's separated, they're not far from each other. I mean, we're talking a few hundred feet from each other. You have these pools where these people would lie and hope to be healed, and then you have the temple or a synagogue where people would go and would be considered clean, and, they would, and there's this divide. There's, there's this divide between the clean and the unclean, the right and the wrong, those who could approach God and those who couldn't. And, and the sounds, the smells, the sights that you would get from those contrasted in a major way. And so one thing to recognize is who Jesus goes up to. Who Jesus on the Sabbath, knowing that being even near those people would probably make him unclean so that he couldn't go worship that morning in the temple. He goes straight to that. And just if you're... If you're uh, kind of curious why verse 4, if you have, I, I'm reading the English Standard Version, if verse 4 is omitted, you may have a footnote. 
there. Um, it goes from verse 3 straight to verse 5. Don't let that freak you out. Um, the earliest manuscripts and the most reliable ones we have just basically those, that doesn't exist. Uh, there was a superstition at the time. There was, a, there was an underground um, spring that every now and then would hit one of those pools and it would stir it up. And people thought that that was an angel doing it. And so they thought if they could get into the pool while the water was stirred up, it would heal them. Okay, but, but we, you know, the, like I said, the earliest, most reliable manuscripts don't have that. And they think somebody added it later to make sense of verse 7, which is where he says, like, hey, if, like, I want to get in there and get healed, but somebody gets in before me. So just a little side note, didn't want anybody. And if you're a Bible nerd like me, you'll, you'll be researching that later. And it's a lot of good fun. Um, but... Um, verse 5. Verses 5 and 6 is where we really come to the gripping part of the story because here is where we see what it looks like when someone who is completely hopeless, who has developed an interpretive bias like Dr. Beard talked about in her article, what happens when they come face to face with the hope of the world? I mean, this guy did not have a clue who was walking up to him. I mean, I mean, you, you don't, like, he wasn't calling out to Jesus. He wasn't reaching out for Jesus. He wasn't trying to get to him. This wasn't a Zacchaeus situation where he's doing everything he can to see Jesus. This guy's just sitting there hopeless, totally hopeless. And I love what Jesus does. Yes, he heals him, but it's the way that he heals him, it's the way he approaches him that, that I want to focus on. Jesus goes up to him, and he extends grace. He extends grace. Uh, John, you know, each, you know, like we said, each gospel kind of tries to convince you that Jesus is this different aspect of his, his personhood and his character. Uh, John, so each, each gospel has like an introduction to Jesus, right? So, so uh, Matthew, he's trying to convince you that Jesus is the king. Uh, he opens up his gospel, and he gives Jesus this great title. He says, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then he like hits the genealogy immediately, right? Which most of us skipped over in our Bible reading plan this year uh, because we don't know what half the names mean anyways. And that's okay. But the opening line, then you get Mark. Mark opens up. The guy who's convincing him he's a servant is it says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Which all through the Old Testament, the Son of God is the person who would come and bring healing and, and serve. You know, he's bringing ideas of, of Isaiah you know, 53, the, the suffering servant of Christ. Uh, Luke, Luke has a really different one because the first introduction we get of Jesus in Luke is actually Elizabeth when John the Baptist is in her womb and he jumps and then she proclaims Jesus as the Christ. Like what's more human than being born? Right, like being in your womb. So it's this great thing. And I love the way John sets up Jesus and gives him his title and introduction. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what John says. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So when John uses the word, word, uh, that you could just put Jesus right there. Uh, verse 14 in, in, in chapter 1, John said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16 it says, And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And then he actually gives us a bookend here. 
So at the very end of his book, in chapter 20, he said that he wrote these things so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Uh, John's trying to give us a lens of how to see Jesus. And that word grace keeps coming up, and it's really important. Our, our, our uh, daughter Abigail, she just turned one this week, and a few weeks ago she got glasses, which babies in glasses is just like the cutest thing in the entire world. They're like the big goggle pink, hot pink glasses. And it was great because, you know, as far as we knew, life was just totally normal for her. And, but it was, you know, we, she was going a little cross-eyed, and we took her to the, the eye doctor, and they did tests and determined she was farsighted. And, um, you know, we, when we put the glasses on her, it was amazing because it was like for the first time she was seeing little details and stuff. You know, she was seeing those little, like she was picking up like blueberries and like looking at them, you know, and, and she was crawling around on the carpet and like realized carpet had individual little, you know, things on it. And, and it was, she had these new lens to see the world and it kind of changed everything. And what John is doing when he's given us the, the beginning of his book and the end, he's given us these lens so that as we read through and we look at Jesus, we understand what he's doing. And so what, when he talks about we, we, he came in in his fullness, meaning like every bit of who he was on earth and who he is today in heaven, when we see Jesus, we receive grace upon grace. And he's absolutely full of grace and truth. What John is trying to convince us of is that Jesus came so that we can experience the life we were made to live by Jesus, for Jesus, and with Jesus. And we experience that life by experiencing his grace. Being a follower of Jesus means doing life right now with Jesus. That's why these gospels are so important, going through these questions, because it shows us who Jesus is. I mean, Jesus was an actual, real human that walked the earth. I mean, he smelled the smells, he saw the sights, he touched the people. I mean, this is a real person but a lot of times, I mean, if we're honest, a lot of times the Gospels are hard for us to read because you maybe grew up in, in a church environment or, or grew up where, where it was taught to you that your salvation was something that only happened once you died. Like, hey, you kind of check the box, you put your faith in Jesus, you died, now you get to go to heaven and you don't go to hell and like, great. And, and, and that's good, that's all true. I don't want to downplay the, the salvation and all that, but we still have to live life on earth now. And how do we make sense of it? Like, like, how do we make sense of this, like, day-to-day thing where we wake up and just try to figure it out? Like, where is Jesus in that? And how do I follow Jesus in that? But see, when we experience Jesus as he, as he said he was in these questions, they show us who he is and help us grow into it. Life becomes a lot more, it makes a lot more sense when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now. And when he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a wait until later. We get to experience the life of Jesus now and we experience it through his grace. Because if you just wait for the goodness, to experience the full goodness of God until you die, it's like having access to electricity all day but not using it until it gets dark. Like, man, there's a lot of, like we don't, nece- like, we don't necessarily need these lights right now, but they help, you know? I mean, like, like we're running cameras, screen. I mean, kids, like, imagine, like, no Wi-Fi until it got dark. Man, I mean, is that even a life? I mean, come on, is that, do we, I mean, I don't know. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm kind of kidding. But I mean, just think about like, what, what if we had access to electricity, the power of it? I mean, this morning I had toast with peanut butter and honey, my favorite breakfast in the world. We had that breakfast and the toaster ran on electric. But what if I was like, hey, you know, I know this is good and I know I can use it now. And like, but it's, I'm just going to wait till it gets dark and I can turn the lights on and get it all at one time. Turn everything on at once. It's like, no, no, like, it's the same thing for us now. Like, we don't, we experience Jesus now by receiving his grace. And, and, and there's a whole other theological conversation about waiting, I mean, thinking that salvation is only for once you die. I mean, we, we live eternal life and new life now in Jesus. We don't, have, we don't have to wait. I mean, like, that's why for so many of us, it turns into a crisis of faith every time we sin or mess up or feel guilty about something because it's like, man, like, does this affect my salvation? No, no it's like, no, you're, if you placed your faith in Jesus, you're a, you submit to his rule and reign in your life and experience his grace, there's no need to go into a tailspin. I mean, anyways, that's a whole different, that's a whole different, maybe that frees somebody up. Jesus said in John 17, later on, he's praying, he's praying to God, really for us, and he says, and this is eternal life. All right, so eternal life. We think eternal life only begins after death. But, but he said, and this is eternal life, that they know, that's an experiential knowledge, they know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. See, we enter eternal life when we experience the grace of Jesus and we place our faith in him, and then that eternal life just keeps on going with him forever. Uh, Dallas Willard, great book. Here's a really, if you like nerdy, um, uh, nerdy books, this is a great one. The Divine Conspiracy, great Bible nerd book. It says this, it says, he said, the message of and about Jesus is specifically a gospel. It's good news for life right now, not just for dying. It's about living right now as his apprentice, or as we would say disciple, in kingdom living, not just as a consumer of his merits once we die. Our future, however far we look, it's a natural extension of the faith by which we live now and the life in which we now participate. Eternity is right now, and it's moving, and we're moving with it, like it or not. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to help us see these stories, this life of Jesus. It, it, it matters. The way that, that we approach Jesus matters, and it matters the way that we hear the question asked to us this morning, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Another way we could look at the question is, do you want the goodness of Jesus to change you? But it's easier said than done. It's one good thing to ask rhetorical questions and think on it, and it's one good thing to ask the question like, okay, so what does it mean to be healed, right? Because right here we see a man who's, who's physically healed, and I, abs- I absolutely believe that Jesus does miracles. I, I, believe, I believe in medicine and surgeries, and, and the modern medical world is like incredible. My wife's a nurse. I don't understand it, um, but I think it's great, but I, I still tr- do believe that Jesus heals people. And so maybe today it's a physical healing that you need and you're looking for. Maybe so. Maybe so. But what I want to help us see here is that when Jesus is asking this man, do you want to be healed? 
He's asking him if he's ready to experience his grace and be changed by it. Because grace, here I've heard a great definition of grace. Grace is the tangible way that we experience the goodness of God. Um, a few weeks ago, you guys probably heard me uh, joking around and kind of joking around in announcements, talking about the uh, discovery lunch uh, or, or the discovery dessert, and I prayed that apple pie would be there. Does anybody? I mean, apple pie is a grace of God. Food is. You know, it doesn't have to taste good. It could just be like a tasteless sludge that we eat just to get by with life. But it tastes great, right? I thought I'd get an amen there. I mean, food, come on. Like, we all eat it, right? I mean, good night. I had chai pani with Brian a few weeks ago, and I'm like, praise God for Indian food. Like, like, this is a great, this is grace. Like, it doesn't have to be this good, but it is. But I just wanted to, to free you guys up. They can't, we canceled the discovery dessert because I was the only person signed up. But the next day, I got invited to a... Uh, this lady, she's this very sweet older lady, cooks uh, lunch for us like once a week, and she made a homemade apple pie the next day. And I mean, come on, praise God. Somebody was praying. I don't know, Brian, you lead that ministry, man, so thanks so much, dude. I appreciate that. But, um, but when we're talking about grace, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to, you guys are like, okay, Matt, you're beating a dead horse here. And I just don't think so. I just don't think we can get enough grace of Jesus here, okay? So let me, Lynn Kohick, she's a great great author and theologian, and in her commentary on Ephesians, uh, the famous verse, Ephesians 2a, where it says, we've been saved by grace through faith. She says this, she said, God reveals his wealth and mercy and his inexhaustible love as he extends his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And when we're looking at these stories of Jesus, when we come to church and we're worshiping Jesus, when you're praying to Jesus. What you're doing is you're experiencing grace, whether you know it or not, whether we recognize it or not. This man had no clue what he was about to, what was about to happen. I mean, if you read later in the story, like you go through verse like 18 or 19 or something, like the dude even goes up to the Jews or the Jewish leaders come up and they're like, hey man, who did this? He's like, I don't know. And then he like goes back, he meets Jesus and then goes back later and like tattletales on Jesus. I mean, this guy had nothing to offer Jesus. He had no idea what he was coming up against. But Jesus still healed him all the same. So when we're entering the kingdom of God right now, as we're looking at our King Jesus right now, we're placing ourselves under his rule and reign of grace, and we experience his goodness, you ask the question, do you want to be healed? Let me, let me see if I can rephrase it, not to change the words of Jesus, but maybe just to help us think through it a little better. What, are, what area of your life does the grace of Jesus need to conquer? What area of your life does the grace of Jesus need to conquer? Verse six, let's look and let's just talk about some things. What, what happens when we experience the grace of Jesus? We're gonna go through these next points uh, a little faster. Verse six, we see that the grace of Jesus reminds us of our worth. See, hopelessness a lot of times can come because you just don't think you're worth it. Not worth anything good to happen to you. I mean, look what it says. I love it. It says, Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew. He saw him, and he knew. For whatever reason, out of the whole crowd of people, Jesus thought that one dude needed to get healed today. For whatever reason. I mean, think, I mean look, he said Jesus knew exactly the lengths that he had gone through. Jesus knew that he didn't have anybody that he felt lonely, he felt isolated. 
Jesus knew that that man was, was hopeless, but what I love is with the lens that, that John gave us earlier, said there was nothing made that wasn't made through Jesus. And Jesus saw that guy knit together in the womb. Right? Jesus knew exactly what to heal. He knew exactly what that guy needed. He saw him. He thought he was worth talking to, listening to, noticing, and healing. Man, some of you, we may think we're like too far gone and just can't come back. And we may think like, man, I'm just so, I'm just, I've just messed up so much. I, I, I can't, or maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's like, I can't even remember the last time I prayed. God doesn't want to talk to me right now. Man, let me just free you up. You are worth way more than that. You're worth way more than that. Man, you're, you're, you're worth the grace of Jesus. You're worth him enough coming up. He sees you right now. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what area of your life you need his grace to just totally cover. That's free. It didn't cost this guy anything. It's totally free. Because Jesus, I mean, he paid the price for it. And he thought you were worth it. The second thing, verse 7, I love, it says, the guy says, sir, listen, I, like Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? He said, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Man, so when Jesus came, he came at the time of hopelessness. And the grace of Jesus, it gives us hope. I mean, that's, that's all a lot of us need. There's this, there's this really, uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this story, but um, there's this really weird study done in the 50s. Um, with this, this doctor, this uh, psychologist, basically what he did was he took like a dozen rats and he put them, he, he got jars of water and he put all the rats in water just to see how long they could swim. And right before, um, he took note and like right before they were about to die, he took them all out. And he, and he did it again over the course of a few days, took notes, saw how long they could swim or whatever. And then eventually, like there were a few that died and he'd take notes of when they died and stuff like that. It was right around the same time, right around the same time. Well, so then what he did was, um, and what was in it, he took a note that once one of them drowned, the other one started drowning almost immediately. So he got, you know, whatever. He, he got new jars of water and he, and he put, you know, more rats in there and they're swimming around and he took notes at the time and right like a few seconds before in the other studies the first rat had died, he took one rat out and he got it out and he just held it for a while and he gave it some food, let it breathe for a little bit and then he put it back in and he noticed that the rats, none of them died for like days. They just kept swimming. And, and he, he tried it a few different times with a few different rats. And, and what he came to the conclusion was, all those rats needed was just one glimmer of hope that they'd get pulled out of that jar. They just needed that one ounce of hope. And man, let me just tell you right now, if you're in that hopeless, if you're feeling hopeless, let me just, let me just give you, hopefully give you a little bit of hope. Man, like Jesus loves you so much. And man, we are a church that loves, loves you. I mean, we, want, we would love for you to be here and get involved and connected. We think you're worth it. The way that Jesus went and found that person and touched it, man, we want to do that for you. So please don't stay isolated. Please let the, see this if you're like, I'm waiting for a sign. Man, let this be your sign. Reach out, connect with us, get involved. Don't, man, don't, don't think it's over. Don't think it's hopeless. This is, this is it. The other hopeless story I was going to tell is about being an Atlanta Falcons fan, but I'm not going to talk about that. <clears throat> Verse 8. 
Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up your bed and walk. I mean, Jesus, the grace of Jesus, what it does, it, it reminds us of our worth, it gives us hope, but it also redirects our focus. Because when Jesus there, what happens in that moment when he hears the word of God, the creating change agent of God on earth, what happens is the guy no longer is looking for the pool to be healed. See, he thought he had bought into the superstition that if he had just gotten in that pool, the first one in there when the water stirred up, he'd be healed. But I mean, the, the second that Jesus commands him, his, his focus totally changes, right? I mean, there's just no way that this guy could have believed at that point, man, Jesus thinks, but like I was, I was almost there. <laughs> like if I could have just gotten in that water, I would have been fine. No, like, like Jesus changes his focus totally. See, a lot of us, man, we, we gotta change that interpretive bias. We gotta change that interpretive bias. Like a lot of us, if we're honest, I don't wanna get into the pessimist optimist thing. I don't know how this equates. But I think too, a lot of us, we, we approach Jesus, we approach God with one of two mindsets that either God is for us or he's against us. And that totally changes the way we approach him. And so maybe it's just time to think, man, I'm, I, I gotta redirect my focus. I gotta remember and preach the gospel to myself that God became flesh. He lived a human life, the, the perfect life that I could never live. And then he died on the cross, the death that I deserved to die to pay the penalty of sin. But he rose from the grave, conquering death. And now I can live an eternal life connected with him now and then with him forever. Man, some of us just need to remember that, redirect our focus, and remember that Jesus loves you. Man, he, he's, he, he didn't create you to hate you, <laughs> okay? Like, like, God did not make humans just to like, man, I hope I get to wipe those guys out one day. No. He said, it's, it's God's will that everyone comes to know him through repentance. And God wants every single one of us to redirect our focus to him and experience his goodness and grace. And then verse nine, I love this. And, and at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Man, uh, the grace of Jesus, when we experience his goodness and we place our faith, it does require action. The, the grace of Jesus requires action. The man didn't do anything to earn the grace. All right, so I don't want you to think that. I don't want you to think that, like, you gotta do something to earn it. We, we've made pretty clear this guy didn't do a thing. Jesus just came up. The grace of Jesus, the goodness in our lives, we don't have to do anything to earn it, but once we've experienced it, it does require some action. And that action is emailing matt at fellowshipashville.com to serve in the work and production. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. No, but seriously, it, it, it's, it's the, the way Paul puts it. I love it. He says, I, we were once slaves to sin and death, but now we're slaves to righteousness. Man, when you experience the grace of Jesus, it's not out of guilty obligation, like, well, I mean, he did die a cross, so I guess I'll do something. It's like, no, 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 like, like, Jesus, you have done so much for me. You have given me a life that I should live a new life, and I'm gonna follow you. And it, it, like, a lot of us think of it as sacrifice. I can't remember the guy's name. He was a missionary to Africa, and somebody said, hey, do you re ever regret sacrificing so much? For, for the mission of Jesus. And he said, no, it's not a sacrifice because a sacrifice is giving up something good for something not as good. But when Jesus reaches out, showers us with his grace, calls us to follow him, we still have to die to self. 
but it's not a sacrifice. Because you're not giving up something good for something bad. You're giving up our life for the best life, the eternal life now on earth and forever. And so let me just, let me just ask us today as we close. And what, like, do you want to be healed? Do you want the grace and goodness and love of Jesus to change you? Or what area in your life? Maybe it's not an internal thing. Maybe you're like, man, I, I'm, I'm doing my best to follow Jesus, but I feel hopeless because of these circumstances I'm in. That whatever these, these outside things come in, it's just like this constant barrage. Hey, let me just free you up. Do you want to be healed? What area of your life do you need to submit to the grace of Jesus? Because this is not a call to action, like it's going to get hard and it's brutal. There are things that you've got to give up. There, are, there is a cost to following Jesus. But listen to what he said. Matthew 11 said, hey, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. The grace that Jesus offers is not a heavy burden. It's, it's freedom and it's life in his name. So I just want to I just want to close up by asking you and 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 asking you to pray with me. To just pray this prayer. You can write it down, pray it out loud, whatever you need to do right there, but I I want you to just kind of fill in the blank. I need your grace to heal me from this. From blank. Maybe it is a physical thing. I don't know. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe today for the first time you say, man, I feel like I don't know this Jesus you're talking about. And as I'm hearing the, the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, I want that life. I want life in his name. I want to know Jesus and experience that eternal life. You can say, Jesus, I need your grace to heal me from sin and death. And you can do that today. So let me pray for us. And as I pray, please fill in the blank and pray that to Jesus. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your grace. Like Paul said, as we look into the face of Jesus, we get to behold your glory. And so God, I pray for all of us today that, that grace isn't just some like, thing that we get to hope for in the future, but right now, God, whatever area of life, we all need your grace to rule. Father, I'm just asking you to do it. God, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from you. So, Father, whatever gift that is that everybody needs today, maybe it's a physical healing, maybe it's a restored relationship. God, maybe it's just a hope for the future. Lord, I pray you bring that to us right now in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.